Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the disappearance of flight MH370, which has never been found after taking off from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia on the 8th of March 2014. I wanted to start with a bit about air traffic control and flying and a a few of the concepts, I guess, before then going into the facts of actually what happened on the day and then potentially the theories as to as to why what happened because uh, i think that made makes the most sense and this will then become important later on and will make the rest of it make a lot more sense so hopefully that that works i have worked in, i have worked for air traffic control before but as like in the engineering team not on on tech things rather than actually being air, on air traffic control so i have some vague knowledge of this but it was a few years ago now so it's definitely changed since then but yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see how how helpful my knowledge becomes in the story. So first of all, I wanted to talk about how planes communicate and how you can like find planes. So planes uh, communicate down to air traffic control and to other planes, primarily through radio, and they will get told what frequency uh, to transmit on when, uh, as they're flying. So the air traffic controllers will tell them what frequency to use, and then they will use that and tune in their radio and and talk to talk to other planes in that way. Uh, so that that's key. Then. In terms of seeing where planes are, obviously air traffic controllers and other planes rely on planes telling them where where they are and and what they're doing, but they also rely on radar. And I, I I find playing radar really interesting, which I think is very odd, maybe because that is like something that I worked on a lot around like maintenance of of radar. And it there's loads of radar in the UK or all over the world they're kind of literally like spread out all across the country and that is I don't know I always find things like that really interesting where I didn't realize anything existed and then I found out and they're everywhere but basically there's two types of radar so the first is primary radar and that is is a more is an older type of radar and basically what that does is it sends out a Uh, like a a beam and it relies on it hitting something and then coming back so what the radar picks up there's no there's no choice it picks up anything that it 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 can ping off of basically and and then it comes back to it but it's quite old and it basically it doesn't tell you anything once it hits that object it just knows that there's something there and so it can tell you where it is and so it doesn't it doesn't have any really like fancy systems it just kind of reports on it and that's used that is used in air traffic control but it's mainly used as like the backup system um if if secondary radar is not working so then secondary radar is the primary one that's used by air traffic control and that relies on the planes having a transponder in the plane itself and what will happen is the the secondary radar will will ping out and the transponder will respond and and inform the radar where the plane is and it also shares like a little bit more information in terms of the um like the the call sign and 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 the height and things like that as well so it's a lot more more useful to air traffic control because they can get more data as to where the plane actually is but like I said, it does rely on there being a transponder in the plane and that transponder working. Planes 
also have another system called the ACARS system and that is um, a system which sends uh, like technical information from the plane down to the ground and that uh, includes a lot more information so it includes things like uh, the height, speed, like how much fuel is remaining. Uh, and it also sends back like lots of like maintenance alerts as well. So things like, uh, you know, how if, if everything's working, if there's any alerts, if, you know, if something's malfunctioning, anything like that. So it's, it's, it, it helps other people to know that the plane is, you know, in a good, in a good state. Yeah, there's usually a couple of systems which do the ACARS transmission back. So... Planes don't actually always appear on radar. There is a lot of the world that is, that is, does not have adequate radar coverage uh, because you obviously need a radar in, in, in some form of proximity in order to get that signal back. And so when planes are flying over the ocean or when planes are flying over like remote parts of countries, especially, especially like really large countries, this means that there, there is no radar. So it's, it's all going off uh, voice communication and, and, that, and that's it really, <laughs> which I found really horrific when I first found that out. I was like, what? The, they can't see where you are, but no, they cannot. And so like literally when you're out in the ocean, you're, you're kind of, you, you, you're by yourself basically. <laughs> And obviously, like, they'll talk to the other planes and that's how they'll know, like, if bad weather is coming up, they'll talk to the plane in front of them and go, you know, how are you getting on? Like, what's, what's, what's up ahead? That kind of thing. So they do get information that way. But yeah, they're not, they're not tracked on radar and, and it's all reliant on them checking in to say where they are. And, and it kind of depends where you're flying as well as to like where, how, how you're managed over the oceans. Like some oceans are very like highly managed. If you take the Atlantic, the flights between America and, and the UK and Europe, um, they're very highly managed and there's like specific tracks. So there's like specific uh, coordinates that you have to fly on. And basically when you leave airspace in America they'll like put you on a track and be like here's your track this is your you know this is how you need to fly out this is like the time separation between you and the plane in front of you off you go basically try and stay on that track um please and and then kind of talk to the other people that are on your track so you're kind of all in a big line which means that you can you know you know who to talk to in front of and who to talk behind but yeah it always makes me laugh that then when you you get picked up by on the radar on on the other side whichever way you're coming is then the air traffic controllers on that side to be like all right let me sort you all out again <laughs> let me make sure you're actually like all in the same place and 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 actually you know flying in in the way that makes sense so that's very interesting but do not worry there is always even even if there's no radar and even if there's no radio there there are other pla- like systems on planes to make sure that no like collisions happen there's um collision detection systems literally everywhere so it yeah it's very very hard for planes to hit each other and it will you know there's a lot of alerts it's it's not a common thing anymore because of that but yeah anyway that was a very random rant but basically there's lots of radar radar doesn't cover oceans <laughs> um, so we if you're over the ocean it very much relies on uh, voice communication However, you're probably thinking like, oh, but like my phone can tell me where I am. And this comes back to actually what we talked about in the uh, shipping one, uh, my first ever episode, the El Faro one, where the boat didn't have any, sorry, the ship didn't have any 
GPS or anything, which I I found mad, but planes are the same. So they don't tend to have, you know, like the nice thing that we have on our phone, like GPS and and uh, coordinates and that kind of thing, mainly because it's just really expensive. <laughs> um, especially when you're like out in the remote um, re- remote areas, it's not a lot of coverage, it's, it's quite pricey. Uh, so a lot of planes actually do have the capacity to, to use satellite information and may use satellite information when they're in particularly remote places, but a lot of planes do not. Uh, so they don't, they don't make use of that uh, technology. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later on anyway as well. And yes, Malaysian Airlines in this case definitely do not use the satellite technology. They have the capacity for it, but they were not paying for that service. So then finally, just air traffic control as a concept. So air traffic control is still very much managed by a controller. Each controller essentially like owns a section of the airspace, like a sector. And as you fly, one air traffic controller will be like, cool, I'm looking after you whilst you're in my sector. And as you enter the sector, they'll be like, hello, you know, this is this is the route you should be flying on. This is how high you should be. And then the plane will fly through the sector and it's up to the controller to make sure all the planes are separated in their sector and, you know, are all okay and communicate with them and uh, you know, help manage, uh, help manage fuel, help manage speed, uh, that kind of thing. So they'll they'll help them, and then as the plane flies through the sector, uh, when it gets to the to the other end to a boundary, the air traffic controller will be like, "Great, thank you very much. Now you need to to move over to the next controller. This is the frequency you should contact them on." Yeah, off you go. And then it's a case of then as the fly the plane leaves. One one uh, controller's work system. They will then move on to the next uh, the next controllers, and then they'll see them appearing on the radar, and they'll do it all over again. So if you're flying, you are literally talking to lots and lots of different controllers as you move around, and especially actually in quite busy airspace, the sectors are a lot smaller. So air traffic control have the ability to uh, like combine sectors together or split them out. So if you think about like overnight, you may have like not a lot of air traffic because of, you know, restrictions on noise, that kind of thing. So therefore you'll make your sectors a lot bigger. And as a as an air traffic controller, I'll look after a really big spot. But during the day, like when it's really busy, peak time, not in the pandemic, but you know, like before when we had, you know, flights at Heathrow landing every minute, the, the, set, the airspace will be split down a lot further so that then you are controlling a much smaller area of space so that then you can see see what comes through. Anyway, I could do, I could literally rant on about air traffic control all day, but I will stop now. So that is yeah, but that's important to kind of understand that concept of of the boundaries and of of the planes flying and talking to different controllers as they go. Okay, so now let's get into the events of the day itself. So flight MH370 was scheduled was a scheduled overnight flight from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to Beijing in China. Uh, the flight was captained by Zahari Ahmed Shah, who was 53, and he was an experienced senior captain for Malaysian Air- Airlines. So he was one of the most senior captains that they had. He had a huge amount of flying experience um, and had, yeah, thousands and thousands of hours uh, racked up in terms of flying. And he was joined by First Officer Farik Hamid, uh, who was 27, and this was his final training flight before he then became fully certified. So he also had a lot of experience. Uh, he was going for, for the next exam, and so he was, uh, yeah, very much ready and, and, and able to, to look after the flight. 
Uh, the flight had 227 passengers on board. The majority um, of them were Chinese. Uh, there was around 40 Malaysians. And then there was a mix of quite a few other countries, but uh, including things like Australia, Indonesia, the US, France, and, and several others. And they were supported by 10 cabin crew, all of whom were Malaysian. So that was who was on board. And if we look a little bit closer at the passengers... There were, there's a couple that are worth kind of like calling out just just to think about when we talk about theories. So there was a large group of passengers that worked for a, a large semiconductor organization who were potentially involved in, in security and, and tech things. There were also two passengers who were traveling on fake passports and stolen identities. So these were two Iranians who were aiming for asylum in Europe. And they it only came to light afterwards that they had been uh, traveling on stolen passports. In terms of cargo on the plane then, there was a large consignment of lithium-ion batteries. And that is important because the batteries are highly regulated because they potentially can catch fire and can potentially yeah, result in, in kind of spontaneous combustion, uh, which is why when you check in, they always ask about lithium-ion batteries. Uh, you mainly should you, to, to keep them in your hand luggage so that you can, uh, they're in a pressurized and, and kind of safe environment and you can see them. But yes, yeah, so they were carrying a large stash of those, but it they're, they're very highly regulated. So they would only be carried in a specific way that was deemed safe. Uh, so the batteries on board were under you know the high regulations and making sure that they were okay uh, otherwise uh, it was also carrying 5,000 kilos of mangosteens um so yeah not not the most interesting of of, of cargo otherwise So before we go into the theories, I just want to talk through exactly what happened on the day without any analysis, without any extra information, just like this is the clear facts of what actually happened on the day. Because I think with this story, there's just been so many theories, there've been so many conspiracy theories, there's just been all this like like misinformation being released and I think that it's like key to get get back to the facts of what actually what what we, what do we actually know and then based on what do we know what what can we then think about in terms of analysis back back to the facts so the flight took off as normal as planned from KL airport and it climbed as planned to its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet and it was following the correct heading as planned um, and that took off at, at uh, 12.42, so midnight 42. And everything was normal. Everything everything was normal from the start. Uh, the communications between the first officer and air traffic control all followed the correct procedure. They all cr followed the correct format. Everything was normal. There's been a lot of stories about the, the communications, but they were all as standard and as expected as they would would think. Around then half an hour after takeoff, the flight confirmed to air traffic control that it was at its cruising altitude um, and that it was it was carrying on towards Beijing. 
The ACAR system then, the one I mentioned which sends information about the plane, sent its final report at 106. Uh, this is all this is all um, overnight, so AM. Uh, sent the final report at 106 and that basically reported that it was everything was normal and there was a large amount of fuel left. At 119, the flight was then transitioning from Malaysian airspace to Vietnamese airspace. So it was con- it was uh, transitioning between the sectors that we talked about earlier. So the Malaysian um, air traffic controller talked to the plane and said, "Great, leaving air traffic con- leaving Malaysian air traffic control now. Please contact Ho Chi Minh air traffic control on a specific frequency." MH370 acknowledged this and they said goodnight MH370, which is the standard kind of goodbye greeting uh, in response to the Malaysian air traffic controllers who also said goodnight. And that was the final verbal contract, um, the final verbal contact from the flight. Uh, So 119 was the final verbal contact uh, and they did not contact uh, Ho Chi Minh as expected. So then at 1.21, three minutes later, the flight disappeared from secondary radar. And that means at that point, the the transponder, so the thing in the plane that was responding to the secondary radar was disabled. And that, you know, maybe it was through a technical issue, maybe it had been manually switched off. Basically, the transponder stopped stopped working. How it stopped working, we don't know, but it stopped working. But MH370 was then picked up by military primary radar, so the radar that doesn't require a transponder. And that showed the flight turning right and then left. So basically, it almost kind of looked like it was going back on itself, but not quite. So it kind of like turned turned right, turned left, but then almost like went in a diagonal backwards. And military radar continued to track the flight over Malaysia. Uh, it went to Penang and then it went out into the Andaman Sea. Uh, and the military tracked it until 222 uh, when, when it then went out of range of, of all radar. I recommend looking at just like if you go, it'll come up straight away if you Google MH370, but there's like a map of the of the flight track. I recommend looking at that because it makes it very clear like where they turned and where they turned again. Uh, and it's probably not not the easiest for me to communicate over over voice. Two twenty two was the last time we had radar confirmation of where the plane was. However, whilst MH370 and Malaysian Airlines didn't pay for satellite tracking like we talked about so the ability to track the plane wherever it was it was fitted with a satellite device which was run by the big company in Marsat and what that device meant is that it would connect to the satellite so the Inmarsat satellite at set times but essentially it was blocked from sending data so it would try and connect and then the satellite would block it. And it's, it's kind of known as, as sending a ping. And I read a good analogy, actually. And it said, it's like when you're out of coverage on your phone, your phone will ping all other networks in the area, but only your network that you're paying for will actually let you connect. All the other ones will, you know, will acknowledge the ping and then basically not not let you connect to it. So what was happening on the plane at this point was that the plane was pinging the satellite. And Inmarsat released this data and basically what it shows was that the plane was still responding and was still flying until 
8.19. So almost six hours after that 2.22 when it went out of radar coverage. So the, the flight didn't crash immediately. It basically continued flying until 8.19 uh, when the satellite no longer got any response. Um, and presumably at that point, the plane crashed into the ocean. So that's it. That's the hard facts. That's actually all we know about Malaysian 370 and, you know, the the core information. When MH370 was due to contact Ho Chi Minh, they, you know, kind of gave it like a couple of minutes and said, yeah, okay. Once it disappeared, you know, they noticed it was missing. Uh, They attempted to contact the plane at 1.38 they contacted uh, the Malaysian air traffic control to see if it had turned around or if they knew where it was. And then there was basically like a lot of air traffic control confusion as to whether where the flight was. Was it in Cambodian airspace? Uh, but that was confirmed that it wasn't. They contacted Malaysian Airlines directly who reported an approximate location. But this was confirmed later that it was only based on planning. It wasn't actually a real like idea of where the plane was. And they basically, it was just a load of confusion from an air traffic control perspective because it was in that border between sectors, between handoffs. And so because of all of that confusion, it took until 5.30 until the air rescue coordination center was alerted and stood up. So almost four hours after disappearing, the the air rescue coordination center was actually stood up so usually that should happen within within an hour of of a plane disappearing Uh, but yeah because of all this confusion it uh, did not happen so at 7.34 then when it was an hour after the flight was due into Beijing Malaysian Airways released a statement stating that the flight had been lost and search and rescue operations were underway the thing around this is like, and it's similar again to the Alfaro one, it's just like, how can a plane go missing? Like, I think that's that's what like has really caught the imagination and the theories of people because it's just really hard to understand. And there was a really good quote in the in an article I read, which said, the idea that a sophisticated machine with its modern instruments and redundant communications could simply vanish seems beyond the realm of possibility. It's hard to permanently delete an email and living off the grid is nearly unachievable even when the attempt is deliberate. And I thought that was really like key because it's so true. Like it just seems mad that like in a day where we're tracked by so much data constantly, like my phone probably knows where I am at any moment of the day. How can in this day and age, a plane of that size and that, you know, with that many people on it just simply disappear. But like I talked about earlier, it's air traffic control is not a perfect system. You know what I mean? It does, it does as much as it can do and it, and it does an amazing job, but they are, constrained by funds flights are constrained by funds they do what they need to do to follow the regulations and and Malaysian Airways was following the regulations so you know they did nothing wrong in this story well they did nothing wrong in terms of uh, of of how the plane communicated in this story I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on the about the search because it was really complicated and there was loads of different stages over like the last like five years to try and find the plane 
But basically, they started looking in the wrong place. So the Malaysian government were very bad at communicating information and they frequently kept a lot of information back. It, you know, things like they didn't release the military radar coverage for a long time. They didn't release the Inmarsat satellite data. It got, um, it got leaked actually rather than being formally released. And so it was just really like a mess in terms of the, where, where they were, where they were searching. But eventually, once the Inmarsat data was fully analysed, it basically uh, said the, there was like a large arc in the southern Indian Ocean, kind of to the left of Perth in Australia. Uh, a large arc was identified there, and it was then that they kind of like knew somewhere on this arc, but the arc was, you know, ginormous. So it was a huge amount of area to search. They, they've searched some of it, not all of it. It's, it's gone on for years. It's been funded uh, mainly through all the different governments that have been impacted. Uh, it's been airship, seabed scanning. Yeah, it's, it's just been going on, but obviously it has not been successful up until this point. So in 2015, the debris from the flight actually started appearing, especially in small uh, islands like Reunion and Madagascar. And that included things like like wing parts, personal belongings, lots of things like that uh, have have been washed up. And people, yeah, go go around kind of collecting those, and they sometimes give us a little bit of insight into maybe what happened. But yeah, the search search was formally halted in 2018, and the Malaysian government have said that they would start it again uh, if there were more kind of concrete theories as to where to find the plane. So everything we've done so far has been pretty firm in terms of fact. So this is just me and my research. So we never know if anything is it's definitely correct. But pretty much everything I've said so far, hopefully, is as correct as it can be and is, is kind of key facts as to what happened. So everything from here is very much theory, very much kind of conjecture as to potentially what's happened. There are so many theories as to, to what, what went wrong and... There's a lot of ridiculous ones, you know, like the plane was stolen or, you know, it went into a black hole or it was, you know, abducted by aliens and ridiculous things like that. But I'm not going to go into those. Um, I'm going to go into three kind of like key areas that we think something f- fell into. So first of all, uh, like technical issue, mechanical failure or fire on the plane. So something out of people's hands went wrong with the plane and then something happened, uh, hijacking, and then suicide as the final one. So let's start with the non-human involved idea. So this is that the idea that there was some kind of mechanical fault on the plane, there was a fire on the plane, there was that basically something went wrong on the plane that caused the pilots potentially to try and turn around. So like I said, it kind of looked like they'd turned back on themselves. And maybe they had done that because they knew something was wrong and they were going for an emergency landing. And that could potentially explain why the transponder and why some of the technology was turned off. Because if there was, you know, an electrical fault or something like that, then then that makes sense. But it's just like, 
as with all of these theories, there's like bits of each of them that make sense and then bits that just don't really work. So with this one, it's odd that it was only the transponder that didn't work and there was just no form of like attempt of communication from from the flight and it's not unheard of this this has happened you know where where flights are are unable to communicate at all but it's really rare and based on like the fact that the flight carried on going for so many hours afterwards it just seems odd that it could continue on for so long if something was like so badly wrong with it that they couldn't communicate or 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 do anything so and yeah, so it's just odd. It's also odd that like there was no form of attempted communication from any of the passengers. Obviously, they may not have realized what was going on. They may, you know, they may have not been able to like use their phones, obviously, but sometimes they can, but there was just no even, no even attempts, you know, of them trying to use their phone. This then kind of makes us think that like, okay, maybe... There, there was something that had like incapacitated the the crew and the passengers, which basically just meant that everyone on board died and the plane just kind of like kept flying on autopilot in a straight line until it crashed. And that that is something that could happen. So, you know, there could be like depressurization, which is obviously when the flight is, because the flight is so high, there's just not a lot of oxygen or anything up there. So if it loses its uh, pressurization system, then then people will die um, on board Uh, that's why you have the concept of the oxygen masks falling and the idea with that is that the oxygen masks come down and you have enough oxygen in there for the flight to then descend to a safe altitude uh, where you can breathe but yeah so there's the potential that there was a, a depressurization event which which incapacitated them but again it's weird it's weird that there would be such a significant decompressure depressurization event but then still allowed the flight to continue going for so long. Yeah, it's just an odd one. Same with fire. So there could have been a fire on board. They had the lithium-ion batteries that we talked about earlier. So that could have caused a fire. And and this was, you know, potentially quite a favoured theory. The smoke could have, you know, incapacitated the passengers and crew. But again, like all of these come down to the fact that the plane continued flying for so long afterwards. So if there was something bad enough wrong with the flight that it killed everyone on board how could the flight then continue going at the same altitude kind of in a nice straight line for so long it just seems very odd but you know it 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 definitely it definitely could have happened these things do but yeah it's it's one i'm not totally convinced by in terms of a theory i think so second theory then is hijacking so this would account for the fact that the uh, communication and the other devices were turned off because it did seem kind of like the transponder was turned off manually. Like it just seemed odd that it was just that that broke. Obviously it could have just been an electrical fault, but it did. When you when you kind of read about it, it does make it seem as though someone purposefully like tried to make the plane go dark. And so hijacking makes sense because you would have someone who was trying to take over the control of the plane. If they did take over control of the plane, they were then able to turn off all of these systems, make sure that no one communicated by radio, you know, make sure that it it went dark. So this theory does support that bit of it. It also potentially supports the fact that the plane turned so sharply, potentially, you know, the hijackers had, had taken control of the plane and then were turning it to fly somewhere. 
but it, it's it's hard with the hijacking theory because one they would have like had to have been very well planned and then have got extremely lucky that they managed to time it when the flight was moving between sectors so therefore it wasn't really noticed it's also it's like very hard to get into the cockpit of a plane now uh, because we have had hijacking events in the past it does mean that getting into the cockpit is very difficult and it they could have I'm not, I'm not saying they couldn't have you know they could like the pilot potentially could have invited them in it could have been crew like there's lots of lots of things here they definitely could have get into got into the cockpit but it's very hard these days to do that and I think even if they had got into the cockpit or if they had been like trying to get into the cockpit and you know like forcing their way in you would think that the pilots would communicate as soon as possible that that was happening you know like literally as soon as like you have an inkling of anything happening you would pilots would be on that radio saying hey something's happening making people aware of it so it does seem odd that they couldn't and the and the plane like the pilots do have ways of communicating which aren't like verbally in terms of if they are under dress or anything like that they can communicate like by setting different things at like a set frequency that that maybe indicates something's going wrong so th- there's definitely like things that could happen and and just nothing happened in this case and 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 that is odd if it was a hijacking it could then make sense that they maybe they managed to get control of the plane maybe they managed to to do that without i don't know the pilots alerting anyone maybe they then turned off uh, some of the systems to to hide it and then maybe they turned it turned the plane around and and then this does also kind of make sense in terms of then if it was hijacked and they then wanted to kill everyone on board they could purposefully depressurize the the plane in the cabin and that would cause cause everyone to die on board and then they would be able to carry on so that is that is something that does make sense but again it's then weird that like nothing happened if someone is hijacking a plane it is for a reason you know like you don't just hijack a plane for no reason so why why did they then do nothing why did it then just fly out into the middle of nowhere and 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 disappear you would think that it would you know turn around maybe like go towards the city do do something or think that it would call a ransom or have some demands or i don't know just something <laughs> like you would just think that something would happen in terms of a hijacking and that would you know it would be publicized in some way and no one's claimed responsibility for the hijacking and there's just, there's just nothing really to support that that was the case i yeah i i, I don't buy this one that much e- either just because I just think something would have happened and they've done like really thorough background checks on everyone that was on board and this was like quite a a, a favoured theory especially at the beginning because of those two passengers that had the fake documents so they they considered that maybe that they did it but it soon became clear that they were very much just asylum seekers trying to get to a better place so it's not one that I think is more likely but it's definitely it's definitely a possibility possibility finally i want to cover the suicide option so unfortunately suicide by pilot on plane is not unheard of uh there's been one quite recently actually the german wings flight in 2015 which was purposefully crashed into the side of a mountain it is it is possible that one of the pilots basically wanted to kill themselves and wanted to kill themselves through flight when we look at the two pilots 
it doesn't seem likely that it was the first officer uh, if, if this was the case. It seems he was about to get married. He had, you know, this was his final training flight. He was about to be certified. He had a really good job. It, it doesn't seem like there was any specific signs from, from him. Generally, when you read about this theory, it's definitely the captain who is is focused on. And that is because he had recently separated from his wife and his reported mistress very soon before the flight. It was clear he didn't have many plans after the flight either. And it was, you know, reported that he, he maybe wasn't in, in a particularly great period of, of his life at the time. But that that doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that he he wanted to kill himself. It's just that it, if if you compare the two, uh, maybe that one makes a little bit more sense. And this this theory potentially makes more sense because the pilot has control of the plane and they can easily take control of the cockpit if required. They can take turn the equipment off very easily. They are then very capable of depressurizing the plane and they are then very capable of flying the plane out to sea or on a routing that they choose. There's a bit of information which I, I've kind of read like different theories on, but the captain was a big fan of simulator and had a simulator to do flights and it was found that he had done a similar route in the past to actually what was taken. And, you know, you could argue that either way. You could say, yep, he was just practicing and, and you know, happened to, to do a route that was very similar. Or was he planning something and seeing where it would be taken? To me, this one makes the most sense. It makes the most sense because it's very clear why the, why the plane didn't communicate. If he, maybe he sent the first officer off to look at something, depressurize the cabin, that's fine, repressurized it once he thought everyone died and then basically just like flew off, off to sea. And it makes sense because of like the timing of it, like he would know when he was moving from sector to sector uh, so that that was like the, oppor like the opportune time to do it. He would have very like clear understanding of, of, the, of the controls, of how to disable things. It, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that a lot of people then question why he would then wait so long and fly for so many hours. You know, like, why did he not do that and then crash the plane? The the other examples that we have. But there's a really good Atlantic article that I read, uh, which I will link and talk about later. But it had a really good article in it. A really good quote in it, sorry, about this, which, which helped. And it, it said... It is easy to imagine Zahari toward the end, strapped into an ultra-comfortable seat in the cockpit, inhabiting his cocoon in the glow of familiar instruments, knowing that there could be no return from what he had done and feeling no need to hurry. There was the hum of the living machine, the beautiful abstractions on the flat-screen displays, the carefully considered backlighting of all the switches and circuit breakers. The cockpit is the deepest, most protective, most private sort of home. Around 7am, the sun rose over the eastern horizon to the airplane's left. A few minutes later, it lit the ocean far below. To me, like that, that maybe makes sense then. Maybe it makes sense that he, he maybe he did just fly and just wait it out until... The, the fuel ran out and, and the plane kind of spiraled into the ocean below. I, I think for me, obviously, I've been very clear in this, these are very much analysis and, and conjecture and, and not based on, we've got the facts up there, we've talked about the facts. To me, this is the one that makes sense the most when, when looking at the facts. 
but I equally think that I don't I don't really buy the hijacking one as much I, I do think maybe there was a technical issue or a fire as well I think that that is a little bit closer to the circumstances but I think that the suicide one for me clicks the most I think in terms of what could have happened but uh, who knows if we will ever know because it unless they find it and the fact that one like when we talk about black boxes I should have talked about this in the searches but basically what the black box there's two black boxes one that records the cockpit uh, voice things and one that records the uh, the details of the flight in terms of you know altitude and, and maintenance and alerts and all that kind of thing but the black boxes only record can, like they continually write over themselves in like a two-hour period so it would only have recorded the last the final two hours of the flight so if something had happened the the six hours before when when it actually turned uh we, we wouldn't know if, if it came out on the on the black boxes and the black boxes themselves also only they only transmit a beacon for 30 days once once the plane has crashed so there's no beacon now to, to even find the black box so i think the likelihood of finding it is probably quite low but i do think we will i mean if we learn anything from the titanic they search for that for how long years and years and years and then and then they did eventually find it so maybe well maybe that was a bit easier they had a bit more of a a bit more of a, a key area to search but i, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we do find it eventually it's just when we do find it, will it have the answers that we want? Moving on then to what we learnt. So, and what's improved since then. So there's been a lot of discussion after this around tracking and surveillance of airplanes and requiring, first of all, more frequent check-ins when they are over like non-radar covered airspace. And also really trying to encourage airlines and new planes that are built to to use these uh, satellite systems. And so I think there will be a key uh, switch in the industry with with the new technology that's being implemented across the world. And as new planes are built, uh, I think it's going to be a lot more common for flights to use satellite data and for us to be able to track them exactly where they are and exactly where they're going. Then the other key thing that's changed is what I just talked about in terms of the black boxes so there's now hopefully in new planes the black boxes will will have much longer beacons so instead of lasting for 30 days they should last for 90 days which will help in search efforts and there is a the concept of longer recordings on the black boxes for voice recordings for this um this exact reason to try and record more of the flight and then the last two was a lot of airlines have started doing deeper background checks on pilots um, and on crew because of this, just just in case it was a suicide. And, and because, um, like I said, there was the one in 2015 as well. It's never going to be a foolproof system, is it? But uh, hopefully that, you know, by doing more checks and hopefully by offering more support, that will help if, if it was a suicide. Uh, and then finally, a bit of a random one, but it also, because we had those two passengers on board that had used the fake passports, um, it's actually allowed a lot more 
countries to start doing passport checks before people get on board flights. Because basically Interpol have like a big list of all the stolen passports in the world. And so if someone tries to use one, they literally just have to like run your passport through like a really quick Interpol check and it'll like flag like this has been a stolen passport. But Malaysia was not doing that at the time, which is why they were able to get on board. But since this, they will be lots of, yeah, a lot more checking in terms of who is actually on board, which is very good, I think. So yeah. It's a bit of a it's a, it's a super interesting one. There's so there's so much content out there about it and it's something that's really like captured the the mind of people, but I just don't think we can know. You know, I think I can sit here and tell you like this is what I think the, I think the theory is, but this is just another opinion thrown into the sea of opinions, right? I just think until we until we get the um until we get some more evidence. It's just a mystery. It's just something we'll have to wait and wait and see. Which, yeah, I think it's hard for us to accept. Anyway, I've been rambling on for long enough. So uh, thank you for listening. In terms of references, then, I read a very good book on my Kindle, which was actually free because um, she basically was like, oh, it's been updated loads since um, I wrote this book. So I'm giving it for free. It's called The Mystery of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 by Sylvia Wrigley. And she, um, it's really good. And it basically, it, it goes through in a very similar way that I've done in terms of these are like the key facts and then it goes through each of the theories. It covers a lot more theories than I've covered and it covers them in more detail, like more granular detail. So kind of like splitting out all the different technical faults that could have happened, splitting out the hijacking theories, that kind of thing. So if you are interested, definitely read that. I also really recommend the Atlantic article, which is what I quoted from. It is really good um and it and it goes into it's like a long read it goes into um all the details of what happened and then it puts forward the uh theory of suicide in terms of what they think happened and i found it very convincing so do have a read of that i'll link it below but also i'm pretty sure if you just google mh370 it's one of the top uh results that come up uh because it's so good so it's yeah the atlantic and then I'll put all of the other bits and pieces that I watched and read in the references. I watched a few documentaries. I wouldn't really recommend any of them. So um, yeah, definitely, definitely books and reading for this one. Thank you very much for listening. I would love to hear what you think about this and what your theory is. Uh, so please do either drop me an email at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram and send me a message at when it goes wrong pod. Um, I would love to hear from you. Mm-hmm.